So on the past few episodes, I've been opening with this corny little thing about how you're the reason why we make this show and how your support's the engine that keeps it rolling. But the truth is, I mean it. I just want to thank our Patreons who've been willing to kick in the $3 a month to help us to defray our costs. But even more than the $3, it means the world to me and to us to know that you value the show, which we put together on weekends and evenings and in our spare time. If you like this episode, please help us to make more by becoming a Patreon for just $3 a month. To do that, please go to patreon.com slash prognosisohio. That's patreon.com slash prognosisohio. And thanks. We really appreciate it. Well, I know you're kind of used to me saying this, but today's show is a really good one. We're talking with Kyle Strickland, a Columbus native, Harvard Law graduate, and advocate for racial and health justice. Currently, Kyle's a senior legal analyst at the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity. He's also deputy director of race and democracy at the Roosevelt Institute and director of My Brother's Keeper Ohio, a really important organization that we talk about toward the end of the interview. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Kyle. Kyle Strickland, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. I, I have to tell you, you know, I was thinking before talking with you, if I, if I had a quarter for every time somebody said, you got to talk to Kyle Strickland, <laughs> I'd be pretty rich. Uh, 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 so it's it's long overdue and uh, it's just a real honor to have you here. Well, well I'm grateful uh, to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. So let's start, you know, I guess from the beginning a little bit, I was th- looking at, you know, your journey, um, you know, political science, law, the Kerwin Institute, uh, for the study of race, race and ethnicity, um, and now the Roosevelt Institute piece, um, a whole bunch of other things we're going to talk about along the way. But I, I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about your career path, your you know educational, professional, um, and specifically our focus on this show, which is health. You know, I, I wonder how, how has your path kind of shaped your thinking about health and healthcare specifically, even despite, you know, through the lens of things like race and democracy and some of the other things you're, you're expert on. Of course. So look, you know, I I think what's so important about, about my path, my journey has been the uh, amount of support I've had along the way. Um, whether that's from my parents or whether that's from family members, my teachers, my counselors, um, and, and my community more broadly. And, To me, uh, that support system um, is critical to my success, and I know it's critical to the success of anybody. Um, And what is important for me and just kind of recognizing this journey is that we can't do it alone. Um, I think there's this this broader narrative that we we sometimes hear as it relates to uh, the American dream of of kind of, uh, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and and you can make it and you'll you'll be uh, there like anybody else when in fact... um, I know that where I am today would not be possible were it not for the people who came before me. And so what that makes me think about is all of the external factors that go into uh, someone's ability to survive and thrive in society, and especially as it comes to our health and our well-being, uh, our environments, and, and what our surroundings look like, the, the types of investments um, that our community has or doesn't have uh, makes a tremendous difference. Um, so I know that your life outcomes are so determinative based on your zip code. And for us to understand that health and, and healthcare isn't something that's siloed on the side, you know, this is integral to everything that we do. Um, and so that for me is always 
a part of my journey is understanding, especially as it relates to our history, history on race and racism, and how all of these past things that have happened before me have led to where we are today. And so um, for inequities, for inequality that we see, uh, in order to address that, we've got to make sure that we're reversing some of those harmful policies and practices and the lack of investment that others didn't quite have in the same way. And so that is uh, front in mind uh, when I think about my health and what my well-being and my journey. Yeah, it's so important to acknowledge the support you get. Equally important to acknowledge the privilege you start with. Um, you know, it's funny. You know, we've we've had Jason Reese uh, from the Kerwin Institute on the show, and we we talked about the zip code phenomenon, which you know Jason does a lot of work on uh, around here in Columbus and elsewhere. Um, and it, it struck me talking with him that you know zip code is not even detailed enough. Sometimes, like it can literally be a street by street phenomenon here in Columbus. I mean, deeply segregated area, just like many uh, you know American cities, to- totally un remarkable in in the way which our our communities are designed, but also lots of specifics. I mean, you know, where you start often determines where you end up. Exactly right. And and, in many ways, uh, sometimes you get a lucky break along the way or you don't. And that's why I think it's so important when we think about inequality more broadly. um, There's this idea that somehow um, folks that are marginalized, folks that are left behind are somehow there at the fault of their own. Um, and that those who are successful uh, have done that all, all on their own. And as a result, we, we try to tackle systems level issues with individual level solutions. And that's not going to get us there. Um, and so for us to actually right. address these issues, these disparities that we see, it requires uh, investment in understanding how these structures serve as barriers. The facts are that, you know, as you mentioned, street by street, you could see an incredible difference, um, whether it's in uh, life expectancy, whether it's in socioeconomic status, all that has been set up with uh, barriers and uh, opportunities that have been facilitated for those who were able to build wealth or opportunities for those who were able to facilitate, uh, you know, had additional help and support from others that others might not get. And so, For me, I think what's important is recognizing privilege and power um, as it relates to inequality more broadly and as it relates to access and as it relates to the type of care you might receive. And I think that's so important for me to think about because I know that, um, you know, I had some relative privileges, but, you know, growing up still had a middle class family. My parents got divorced at a young age. I was, uh, uh, we were okay. But I still know that I was able to get a good education. I was able to get some support that others perhaps might not get. And so I think it's so important for us to recognize our relative privileges along the way with some of the challenges that we continue to face. So I have to tell you just a personal note. I mean, here I am on a day when I just found out that my mom got the vaccine this morning out in New York. And I'm absolutely thrilled with that. And I was thinking about that. But also, as I was preparing for the uh, to talk with you, I, I read that uh, your mom worked in healthcare. Yep. And I, I wondered, you know, I wonder if that shaped your thinking about health. Uh, any of the equity issues? Did you see any of that firsthand, or hear about that through her? I, I don't even actually know what specifically did. So, can you tell us about your mom? Of course, I can. I would love to tell you about my mom. So, so my mom worked in healthcare. You know, I kind of knew, kind of growing up about. I mean, that was a lot of. Uh, her her work. She worked at Cigna Healthcare for a while. Did you know health claims and would I would hear in in the the aggregate uh, about the types of experiences 
um, that, that people have in terms of not being able to get the care that they might need or trying to be able to, to get the care along the way and understanding that um, our system, and this is, you know, this is not my mom speaking, this is, this is me, but I'm sure she would agree, uh, our system of, of healthcare and the way um, it operates right now is so all over the place um, that if we get serious about making sure that every single person get the healthcare they, they need, um, it requires eliminating some of the so many of these barriers that we see. I mean, we think about the health insurance system in of itself, and how many barriers that we continue to see. You know, why cannot we? Why can we not do more to provide quality health care for everybody? But actually, my mom, you know, her path to to uh, Cigna and, and United Healthcare that actually, you know, what came at a critical time for our family. I mean, when I when I was growing up, so they lived in, in Northwest Columbus, kind of the Worthington area, growing up, and my parents got married at a very young age, and uh, they were both working at McDonald's, mm. both working at the factory lines, and uh, they were struggling to make ends meet. But my mom was able to find a, an opportunity in healthcare, and then my dad was able to get. Uh, a degree at, at Columbus State Community College where he uh, did some work, did some IT work, and they worked their way through uh, to be able to uh, get my brother and I uh, through uh, public school in, in Worthington, right? And for for those moments along the way, I realized that uh, that pathway to a job, that pathway to an education can make a tremendous difference and tremendous impact. And so uh, my mom was able to get stable benefits, stable care, um, with a quality job. And yeah. we know that makes such a big difference uh, in people's lives. So we're really lucky to have you here in Ohio, I have to say. But I, I have a question for you because you, you went off, did the Harvard Law thing. Why'd you come back? I mean, what, what draws you back to the region? I mean, lots of people go to the Ivies and the big schools and then, you know, end up in the major metropolitan cities like New York or, or something and practice law. But, but you came back home. So, you know, Why? Well, Columbus is home. Uh, you know, I, I think that's that's the shortest answer. I mean, the the facts are that I I never envisioned ever uh, going to a place like Harvard Law School. And you know, for for most of my life, I thought I would be here in Columbus and stay in Columbus. Either I was thinking for college, I was going to go to Bowling Green, or I was going to go to Ohio State. Um, and then you know, wasn't sure what I was going to do from there. You know, I, I think for me and, and for a lot of folks, I think if you look back on where people are, you know, from how they got there, uh, you might think that this was a, a journey or a path that was, that they were set on when in fact I had no clue, uh, <laughs> that this was going to be my journey. You know, I, I barely made it into Ohio state. You know, I actually initially, when I applied to Ohio state, um, I got, uh, de they deferred me and then they actually rejected me initially from my application to Ohio state. <laughs> and it was my counselor, uh, my school counselor who, who called me down one day and said, Hey, Kyle, you know, I think they're making a mistake. Um, and I said, I, I agree, but there's not much I could do about it. She said, I want you to write a letter. I want you to write a letter to them and explain to them uh, why you think you can make an impact in a place like Ohio State. And, and you should write it right now. You've got an hour to do it. And so I put this letter together. I sent it off. And uh, a week later, they changed their mind. And, and the rest is, is kind of history in terms of uh, my opportunities. And I know, had it not been for that counselor, I wouldn't be at Ohio State and I wouldn't be at Harvard Law School and I wouldn't be where I am today. And so I know that so many other people are able to get that type of break, but don't have the investments and the resources and those who focus on you. So for me, going off to a place like Harvard, I knew I wanted to come home. My family's here. Most of my family's here. My two nieces are here. 
Um, and so yeah. this this is home for me. Do you happen to remember the counselor's name? I do. I do. It's Christy Smith. All right. Well, shout out to Christy Smith. That's right. Uh, exactly. <laughs> You have been involved in you know many different roles in the area over the years, um, including in 2018. You ran for state senate. Um, you know, no no easy task in this state to run. Uh, you know, with the kinds of values that you bring to the table, with the the the, the makeup of our general assembly and the way the districts are drawn and all of that. Uh, I guess I just want to ask you, you know, how has that experience shaped your ideas about you know? the nexus of politics and policy here in Ohio. I mean, when you, you know, not just Harvard, but when you talk to people in New York and you think about the Roosevelt Institute work you're doing, um, where, where does Ohio fit into the kind of national discussions we're having? And, you know, where, where, where does it sit in your head? You know, I mean, we have health disparities data. We know where infant mortality or life expectancy or, you know, disparity fits in based on the epidemiology we have. But like, I'm just curious, you know, in, in general, wh- where where do you hold Ohio uh, in that picture? Ohio has a long way to go uh, is, where, is where I hold it. And, and you know, I think this ties into the question of, you know, you, you wrestle with, if, you know, Columbus, Ohio is home to me, uh, but I'm all, it's also not lost on me how, how much further we have to go. Um, you know, a lot of the lessons learned in, in, in 2018 for, for me, you know, when I made the decision to, to run uh, for the state Senate, um, you know, it was ultimately during a time in which Donald Trump was the president of the United States. And there was a clear. Wait, he was. I <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I know. And there was a clear understanding uh, that so much of our politics was broken um, and that we needed to make sure that we had elected leaders and, and officials who were committed to justice, committed to equity, and committed to changing the way things work here. Um, and 2018 was also, uh, we didn't know who, who the governor would be in terms of uh, what, what that election would look like. And so um, I think there was a lot of opportunity in 18 that we saw across the country in terms of progressive leaders uh, running for office. Now, what I ran into and, and ultimately decided to, to drop out and not run full through the primary um, was ultimately seeing how trying to figure out where can I make the best impact. And for me, as a, as a first-time candidate, while I was interested in running and, and making a difference, making an impact, you know, for me, I'm mostly focused on where can we, whether it comes with our politics or through policy, address some of these disparities that we continue to see. And right now, uh, unfortunately, uh, for people who have the types of beliefs that I have, it's incredibly difficult to move in this state legislature. It's just incredibly difficult. There is a state yeah. legislature that has been captured by uh, special interests and captured by things that actually don't reflect what everyday Ohioans are feeling. And so for me, you know, I think politics and policy are critical. I know that you can make a tremendous impact by having a platform to talk about these issues, to talk about racism as a public health crisis, to talk about the disparities that we see. And so now through my role at both Kerwin and at the Roosevelt Institute, I often look at these issues on what can we affect at a macro level, as well as how do these policies impact us locally? And I've been able to have that platform to talk about these issues, and I'm grateful for that. Yeah, we've talked to quite a few members of the General Assembly on this show. And you know, when you talk to somebody in the minority, especially, you know, there's a sense of just how you can, you know, the, the question is, how can you get any leverage on anything? 
you know i mean it's uh the the gerrymandering issue the sort of the structural constraints of our democratic process make it very hard to even have a conversation you know putting aside the question of policy change yep. like it's just it's hard to get people to engage when you lack power um in that to that to that extreme so um yeah i, I think that's that's a, that's a really really important set of um uh, of, of points you've made. I, I, I want to ask about the pandemic a little bit. Yeah. You know, you, um, you know, you are, you know, again, this new position you have as deputy director of race and democracy at the Roosevelt Institute. Um, you know, you, you are coming into this during a pandemic where we've had, uh, you know, widespread, well-documented racial and other disparity uh, w- within COVID itself. Um, I guess I would, want to ask you a little bit about what have you learned during the pandemic? I mean, as you're sharpening your thinking and heading into this new position, where does one put their emphasis? Of course. So, so there's a couple things. So one, I think it's important for all of us to be able to step back to, and just even on a personal uh, reflection and a personal moment about how we're all going through uh, a lot of trauma uh, in this past year. And, um, I think as we understand how our work intersects with uh, our everyday realities and what we're living through every single day, it's hard to kind of step back and step away and recognize, uh, wow, our, our own sense of well-being um, is is under constant threat, right? It, it's 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 we've normalized it at this point, you know, a year in, but it, I mean, this is not normal. None of this is normal, and you know, for for me, the way I look at this is understanding that the disparities that continue to persist and that have been exacerbated by this crisis um, continue, you know, people talk about shining a light or revealing these large disparities. I mean, these disparities have always existed. And, um, <laughs> you know, when we look at yeah, the, yeah. The, the pre-COVID times, a lot of people were suffering a lot and they were, they were going through a tremendous amount of vulnerability. And then to add this on top of it, it goes to show what happens when as a collective, as a, as a government, as a nation is not prepared, does not have the adequate, robust infrastructure we need to deal with a pandemic like this, or you, you, you get rid of the pandemic response team as an example, right? Ahead of time, not being prepared. Right. So for me, my focus is on this, especially you cannot think about this pandemic without also thinking about everything going on with this past summer and all of the the protests before then and the Black Lives Matter movement more broadly, when all of these issues of racial justice, of economic justice, of of making sure that uh, we are declaring uh, health and quality for all people, that is something that we now know that we've got to tackle head on and that these issues cannot be siloed on the side over here, or this is a healthcare issue over here. This is the economy issue over here. This is a racial justice issue. These are all compounding crises, um, and we we have to tackle those head on. So that means a stronger public policy response when it relates to the economy and providing relief. But it also means that our recovery is focused on equity and ensuring that everybody's getting access to the vaccine. Everybody's has the resources needed to thrive right. moving forward. So all these are critical points uh, that I think we can't lose sight of, that they, they all are compounding crises. Yeah, I remember thinking back in, I guess, April or May, probably more like May, when we really started to figure out what some of the outcomes of the, the pandemic were. Uh, you know, people started to talk about racial disparity 
um, you know, and this was not about the vaccine. This was just about who was getting sick and who was dying. And I remember saying, you know, it's the least shocking news I had heard because almost every aspect of health in Ohio has racial disparity encoded within it. And it was almost predictable, you know, that this would be another manifestation of that. And, you know, only then did we start to talk about policy change to maybe address this. Of course, George Floyd's murder uh, and then conversations around racism as a public health crisis, another thing that the state, uh, you know, the minority is pushing for, but uh, has not been able to enact on the state level, declaring racism a public health crisis. Um, You know, it's just, it's, it's pervasive. So you don't, you'd almost be surprised if we found an area of our health lives where there wasn't racial disparity yeah. because that would somehow elude the, the 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 power dynamic itself. You're 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 100 correct, and and the facts are that no matter how clear the evidence is, there are still people who refuse to actually actively do anything about it, and and sadly, many of those folks are positions of power. I mean, the, the fact that the state legislature uh, cannot admit that racism is a public health crisis and declare that um, is, is a shame. Um, if, if you are serious about racial equity, you are going to enact policies that address it. Uh, th- this requires more than just task forces. This requires um, not only, you know, and here's the other point that I want to point out is there are a lot of folks and we see with whether it's within our legislature or whether it's even some corporations or businesses who will come out and say, we're all in for racial justice and we're all in for tackling these disparities. And they might put together some really good programs, some even some policy change, right? And there, there's some steps that are being made in the right direction. However, there isn't enough of a reflection about, sure, let, let's move these policies forward, but can we also talk about the policies and practices that you need to stop doing, right? Because what we're seeing are actively right. uh, policies that are actively harmful. And so we see that every single day in our state legislature. When you are talking... Uh, on one end saying, you know, we believe that this is an issue. And on the other end, you're continued uh, attacks on women's rights, attacks on uh, marginalized communities. This is a problem. And we cannot normalize this issue as as some sort of both sidesism thing. We've got to figure out a way uh, of people of all backgrounds to say, we have to take these issues seriously. And that means making sure that we have different folks in power who understand these issues and are able to make sound decisions, who believe in facts, who believe in science, that is critical. We need more of that. You know, you, you said, um, if you're serious about racial equity, and I thought, well, they may not be serious about racial equity. And I think, and, and that brings me to a, a just one other issue I wanted to hit on, which is so much of your work, including this new title you have at the Roosevelt Institute, talks about democracy. And we obviously need to elect people who care about things like equity, right? If if we're serious about this, how does democracy? First of all, how, how did you know? How, how did that make it into the title of the work you're doing? I mean, that's you know one of the two words, race and democracy, that are in there. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about you know what kinds of things you're talking about specifically within democracy. Of course. So you know, as I've done this work around race and, and racism in this country. Um, so much of it talks about our history and how we got here uh, today and telling the story of who we are and who belongs and who doesn't belong. And when you think about the legacy of white supremacy and oppression 
in this country and understanding all the barriers to to get basic rights that we should have always had, um, how critical that is to fundamentally um, having a, a functional, multiracial, truly inclusive democracy. And when the reason why I focus on that work and the reason why that's central to the work I'm doing at the Roosevelt Institute and we're looking at more broadly is that you cannot have a just economy. You cannot have a just society if you have a, a democracy that is not well-functioning and that does not include everyone. People take for granted the democracy yeah. that, that we have in the United States of America because the facts are that it really hasn't been a multiracial democracy for all that long, and, and, and people believe it's inevitable when it's not. And we saw the very attacks on, on January 6th to see just how fragile our institutions are, and especially what it means providing more opportunities, uh, more access, more inclusion to people of color and communities of color as part of our democracy. That is a fundamental uh, a part of our country. And a multiracial democracy yeah. is a direct attack to white supremacy. Because white supremacy is the, yeah. the racial hierarchy of all else and thinking everything else is inferior when, in fact, a multiracial democracy divides up that power. It's not this zero-sum game that white supremacy is trying to, to force this ideology of everything but uh, – or of, of maintaining white dominance in society. We need a multiracial democracy to function, and that means we cannot have leaders in power – who are actively undermining people's rights to vote, who are actively undermining their ability to right. choose politicians and elected officials. And so that's why we see these voter suppression attempts. It's because people are, are some people are afraid of the community having power. And, and that is a threat that all of us need to be focused on. You know, it's something I tell the students I work with, and you know, it takes some convincing to do. They they want to make a difference. They want, for example, they really care about healthcare access. They care about disparity. They care about you know vulnerable and underserved populations. And I tell them, you've got to get involved in in, in expanding voting access. Yes. And they're like, what? But I'm I'm in med school. I'll be like, yeah, I know, I know where you are. Uh, you know, un until we can al allow everybody to vote. And until we can remove all these barriers, and we saw a number of them, and people still came out to vote yep. in the last election, um, you know, during a pandemic, <laughs> aside from from all the uh, you know, the anti uh, voting access that uh, happened, you know, in, in our state and, and others, it, but getting people to think about these larger political categories, gerrymandering, voting rights, uh, think about the John Lewis voting rights bill that's being talked about in in Congress now. Just absolutely essential, but as you mentioned, yeah, that that's that's why they're so there's so much opposition to them because when everybody votes, people talk about things like equity. Exactly right, and 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 here's the thing: there are we are at a situation at, at a point where so many of us are trying to talk about basic access and talk about things like voting rights and how somehow. That has become a partisan issue. When you look at the, <laughs> the electorate, when you look at everyday people, uh, that's a pretty bipartisan issue that uh, crosses ideological spectrums. The problem is you have certain politicians who are in power who are weaponizing uh, false claims of voter fraud and who, who, are, who are contributing to the, uh, uh, the lie that 
this voter fraud issue is there when, in fact, we know that that's just another attempt to suppress uh, black and brown people from voting, period, at the end of the day. And so for us, Mm -hmm. we need to tackle that head on to call out those lies and we need accountability. And so if you're uh, if you are an organization or a person as you mentioned that believes in racial justice, you cannot think that this is disconnected from voting rights and democracy reform. We all need to be pushing for that. And that, that is, that's such a critical thing. If if the structures right now continue on whether it's uh, the rules that we have, the anti-majoritarian rules that we have in the Senate or the rules that we have around gerrymandering, if that continues, we can say goodbye to this democracy that we hold. This this doesn't just happen. This this isn't right. just inevitable. We have to fight for it. And and that that is not a political issue. That's something that all of us as Americans should believe in and understand that is so sacred and fundamental, uh, the right to vote. Right. A republic if you can keep it. That's exactly right. Last question for you. And of all the work you do, I mean, you do lots of impressive work, but, you know, this work you do with My Brother's Keeper is really interesting to me and really important. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about it a little bit. But uh, so, you know, that work's providing educational, but also community opportunities for boys and young men of color. But I'm guessing that you also see this work as relevant to health, right? That that in a way, you know, the work you do at this level also could have short-term and long-term consequences for how these boys, young men grow. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit from, from your experience, how is that so? I mean, in, in what ways is that important work with these young men and boys you know, linked up with that broader conversation. Of course. So, so the framework that that we tackle all of our issues and and look at all of the, all of these uh, opportunities around, as it relates to all the social determinants, right, and all mm. of the, the the milestones along the cradle to career pathway. Um, you know, for for me, being involved in this work with my brother's keeper, you know, I've been involved in it for you know five plus years at, at this point. Um, it, it's crazy how, how fast time flies. Um, and then specifically leading my brother's keeper, Ohio, working with Ohio state and Senator Sherrod Brown's office, uh, with our statewide network, we work alongside the Obama foundation and my brother's keeper Alliance. We work with so many communities, both from big cities and small cities in Ohio, uh, where our young people, uh, while there's an emphasis on boys and young men of uh, color, we also work with girls and young women. We work with their families um, and communities that what we are trying to do is address all the barriers that keep people from thriving. And so when we talk about educational opportunities, uh, this isn't just education in, in the traditional you know, K through 12 sense. It's also about uh, what we've been doing around uh, some of our virtual webinars this past year have been around mental wellness. We've, we've done stuff with uh, the Cincinnati Children's Hospital. We're doing an event with the Cleveland Clinic in the next uh, month or so. We've got an event with uh, Pro Pro Medica um, in Toledo, where we're going to be talking about uh, mental wellness, mental health. Uh, we're going to be talking about social emotional um, aspects, and we're going to be talking about the need for us to go beyond just the immediate programs and to talk about policies. You know, so many of our young people that, that we work with every every day, um, and especially when it comes to um, addressing the issues and barriers faced by their families, 
we recognize that so many are just trying to make ends meet. Um, and we make things so difficult uh, for people in our communities mm. because we do not provide the necessary resource for people to thrive. And basic things like healthcare um, can, makes a tremendous impact on your ability to have one less thing to worry about. That if, if you get sick or you know if you lose your job, then somehow you're going to lose access to your healthcare. We we hear these stories. We see these stories. That's why it's so critical. We talk about Medicaid expansion. That that is so critical, right? So all these yeah, issues yeah. impact the life milestones, your cradle to career. And so um, for us, it's just been a tremendous opportunity really to build community partnerships. Um, and all of the hospitals, I know we're going to be doing at some point an event with Nationwide Children's here in Columbus. Um, all the hospital systems know that right. we have to invest in our young people. And they know that we have to invest in our families and our communities. And so it's such a critical part about building a future and a foundation uh, for success, but also uh, to thrive. So we'll be providing links to you know all the different kinds of projects you're involved in so people can learn more about them, but also support them if, if that's appropriate and if there are opportunities for doing that. Um, I just want to thank you for the important work you do in our community. You know, We try to spotlight that on this show. Um, I feel just absolutely lucky that I get to talk to people like you. I'm glad you came back from Harvard. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> and um, you know, uh, look, love to have you back on the show uh, to see how your work's developing over the coming months and years. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Dan. Uh, we, we've got a lot of work ahead of us, uh, but, but we do it together. So I uh, just really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Kyle. Many thanks to Kyle Strickland for coming on the show and sharing so much with us. We're including a bunch of links in our show notes at wcbe.org and Prognosis Ohio so you can learn more about his work, but also read up on some of the issues we touch on in our conversation. This episode of Prognosis Ohio is hosted by me and produced by me with editorial and production assistance from Claire McGee. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show and follow us on Twitter at, at @prognosisohio. As always, we encourage you to reach out via email and social media with your suggestions and your feedback. If there's anything in your mind or you have a reaction to the show, send us a sound file and we may end up running it on the show, possibly with some commentary. Stay tuned for our next episode dropping in about a week on developments in infant and maternal health here in Ohio. And after that, our first ever Prognosis Ohio book conversation with author Brian Alexander about his new book, The Hospital. It's fantastic. Okay, that's it for now. Be safe and be well.